how'd he become the voice of the biggest video game franchise on earth, the FIFA series? What's the process behind recording the lines that are in the game, and how does that differ perhaps from commentating on a live match? In fact, what makes a good commentator, period? What's going on in the Bundesliga in Germany, and perhaps what are some of the memories you can hold from those magical Socceroos World Cup qualifiers back in 2005? I'm your host, Joey Lynch, and this is Beyond the Lead with Derek Ray. The FIFA video game franchise is big. Slightly understating it, it's very big. Since its inception, the EA Sports produced game series has sold over, pause, 325 million copies. Over 31 million of those coming in the form of purchases of the latest edition, FIFA 21. That's right, more than the population of Australia purchased FIFA 21 last year. The series has become part of the fabric of football around the globe, with clubs looking to get in on the action by launching their own esports affiliates and players themselves obsessing over what their rating or their pace or their shot power or whatever will have you will be in the latest edition of the game. And since 2019, it's been the voice of Derek Ray that has been part of this experience. Initially brought in to call the game's Champions League mode, his purview has since spread to cover all of its modes, and he returns this year alongside new additions Stuart Robson and Alex Scott. But to call Ray a video game commentator is to sell him far, far, far too short, as the Scott has been one of the leading callers of the round ball game for decades now. Since making his debut for the BBC on a Kilmarnock and Dumbarton FC game as a 19-year-old, He's called World Cups, Olympics, including a couple of Oli Roos games, which we'll get to, Champions Leagues, and some of the biggest domestic competitions in the world. As a host of ESPN's Press Pass, he was on hand to watch as John Aloisi converted his famous penalty to send the Socceroos to its first Men's World Cup in 32 years. These days, he's busy as ever calling games across multiple leagues for multiple outlets, and writing a Bundesliga column for ESPN. So, to begin our conversation, I just asked him what he'd been up to as of late. Well, Joey, first of all, thanks for the invitation. You'll see, as I just move up here, I have my ESPN polo shirt <laughs> on today, just in honour of this podcast. So, yeah, ESPN is a big part of my life too. It has been for a long time. Although sort of on and off, it was more off for a while as I devoted myself to other projects. But when you ask the question, what am I busy with? A lot of it at the moment is ESPN because in the USA recently, I don't know if your viewers and listeners know this, but they got rights to La Liga, an eight-term, uh, eight-year uh, contract term. And I'm one of the main commentators on that now. And that's in addition to my work for the Bundesliga's World Feed. So I... I'm one of the voices of the Bundesliga around the world, which you can pick up in Australia as well, and various writing projects. And, of course, the the FIFA video game, which does take up a lot of time, especially from about February until July. That would be the main period when we get everything done. So, 
Yeah, and I also had this summer, summer in the US anyway, the Euros for ESPN, and I had the Olympics for NBC. It covered the Oli Roos, in fact, during their uh, group games. So it's been varied this year. The preparation's a big part of it because I think people assume commentators just turn up and talk into a microphone and then go home again. But it's the preparation that is the unseen part of the job, as I like to say. And it can be, you know, whole days just scribbling away and researching things to be ready for that one moment when you might need the information on the air. So that's sort of the summary. Mm, it's quite a lot on your plate there. And you, men- you mentioned calling the Ollie Roos, and it'd be interesting to hear your perspectives on that because if Australian football is good at anything, it is navel-gazing. So there has been a lot of discussion around the Ollie Roos and maybe a bit of disappointment not to make it out of the group stages after impressing so much mm. against Argentina in their opening game. But when you, do you, did you get, have any takeaways from watching the Ali Roos at the Olympics? I love the performance against Argentina. I thought it really hit all the right notes. And I think Australian fans were entitled to feel on the back of that, that they would get out of the group. And it was so near and yet so far against Spain, when you think about it, you know, it looked as though it was going to be a point. But the thing is, Spain played that way in in every game. I covered all of their games. And it was almost, even thinking back now, I can't really differentiate one Spanish performance from another. It was that same passing game, and Australia were trying to defend, and they almost did it. But then having not done it, then going into that game against Egypt, which I didn't commentate on because I was doing the the Spain-Argentina game, and then it just went wrong. And I think that can happen in a tournament whereby you have one game where it goes wrong. And I'm not sure anybody should be too harsh about it. I think that, you know, the team had its moments during the Olympics and just a sad story in the end because it did look as though, certainly after the Argentina game, that a place in the knockout stages was very much on. I guess inevitably with under-23 football, the real legacy of these tournaments is what they go on to do at senior level. We can ask the likes of Nigeria and Mexico how much their junior championships have been worth at senior level and see that it's more about the transition, isn't it? It is, and that's really what it is all about when it comes down to, you know, thinking long term and I've got great respect for Graham Arnold I was happy actually to see somebody in that coaching position who's also the the full national coach you know I think that is a sign of respect and I would like to see more national teams do it I I know Arnie not well but I've been in his company several times and I've always gleaned a lot listening to him you know so I can only imagine that younger players really glean a lot from listening to Graham Arnold and you know he's been around for a long time in Australian football in world football mm-hmm. and uh, in fact he, he would pop up in some of the the least expected places when I was working in Scotland many years ago I was going to a game at Hamilton Ackies and I forget who the Australian player at the time was who was due to be playing but the club secretary said to me oh there's there's a guy from Australia coming to watch the game um, I said oh who, who is it he said Graham Arnold do you know him I said oh yeah I, I know Arnie and, and he would do things like that he would just travel the world looking at players scouting players so um, yeah big big Graham Arnold fan here. He has, he's been living out of his suitcase effectively since the June Asian qualifiers started with yeah. Australia's 14-day quarantine. He hasn't been able to come home because then he just had to leave again straight after. But 
Um, we've established that a lot on your plate, but you mentioned the recording process for FIFA and how long mm. it takes and all of that sort of stuff. So just walk me through that. Like how many weeks are you doing it? Is it months? How many hours a day do you spend, you know, doing all of that stuff, recording, preparing? What is the process of being the voice of FIFA? Well, the process is varied, but let me just say that I think it would surprise most people how much time goes into the recording. Because again, it's not just rolling up and talking into a microphone and then saying, okay, bye, that's it, done for today. It's very much being part of a team with a producer and a production team behind him, with a sound man and an audio team behind him. And it's a very elaborate process. And the preparation side of it can come in when it comes to especially player names. Because if you think about it this way, I have got to be ready for players who are not yet stars, but might be stars in six months, in six years. Um, But I'm broadcasting their names, recording their names for posterity, if you like. So this is very dear to my heart. People know this about me, I think, who maybe follow me on Twitter or have read things I've written about this before. I have a languages background, and, and languages to me are, are really important, and names are really important. And I think that they're personal to all of us. And it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks your pronunciation should be, the pronunciation of a name. It's what you say yourself, you know? You know, if somebody were to, were to call you, um, you know, uh, Lynch instead of Lynch or Lynch or something, you would probably say to that person, no, that's not my name, mate. You know, you, you, you might want to get it right next time. Here's, here's what it is, just passing that along. And so I have the task of looking at a, a young new player. Sometimes the name is a straightforward one. Sometimes it's not. And trying to get it right and, and absolutely being committed to, to getting it right. Now, the problem comes in when usually that player ends up in England. And what happens when a player ends up in England is the pronunciation sometimes changes. And as somebody from the UK, I've never really understood why this is, but it it does happen that a player's authentic pronunciation gets anglicized. Um, But I'm a believer in saying a name as a player says that name himself. So this is where the preparation comes in, making sure that I'm on top of all that. I'm lucky because I speak a few languages, and so that does come in handy. I've got contacts in many different countries who I try to talk to and try to make sure the pronunciation is correct. There are times when we have to adjust it, and we've done that before. But um, for the most part, that's the process. And then the other part of it is really just being ready for the sessions. You ask how long we go. I mean, they vary according to the day, but, you know, they're all day sessions. So, you know, I'm in there first thing and we're working till the end of the day with this team. We've had to do it differently the last couple of years because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. You know, previously we would try to be in one location ourselves, but obviously that hasn't been possible. So we're working from home studios nowadays. I think everybody who's in broadcasting to any extent at all has a a form of a home studio and and I'm certainly no exception and I've grown to really like my my home studio much as I I miss the travel which was a big part of what we did before so it's really just about refining all that and you know if you if you think about it there has to be a consistency of sound with regard to FIFA because I might have recorded something you know several years ago on a previous edition and the goal is to have something that I'm saying now which refers to a newer player join onto the previous 
statement. So, so that's where it all comes in in terms of making sure that we're consistent. And it's great fun, honestly. It, it's um, a very creative process. And it's something that has become a huge part of my life these last few years. And over the course of a year, it varies by the year, but we might do, you know, anywhere from 20 to to 35 days. Um, not all at once. I hasten to add, I'm not in there for an entire month doing nothing else but FIFA. So it's kind of a, a day here and a day there. And uh, I've had Stuart Robson as my co-commentator for the latest edition of the game, FIFA 22. Stuart's voice is one that's, I think, very well known around the world. If you watch Champions League world feeds or Serie A, certainly in Australia, you'll be well familiar with with Stuart Robson. And so working with Stuart has been great fun uh, in his first year on the game as well. Do you like? Do you hear his voice and get to respond to history on the recording? Do like they play his line? And then you respond, or is is there any sort of interaction amongst the commentators given in that home uh, studio environment that you're also all operating in? Because I know Alex Scott has also come in to the mm. game this year and like the sideline stuff and sideline generally, there's a bit of banter between yep. the callers. What does that look like? There are days when Stuart and I are together, so we're not physically together, or we haven't been this year anyway, in, in time, hopefully, but um, where we're in different locations, but we can hear each other, so we're working off each other, and there are other times when that's not possible, um, similar with Alex, obviously, as you mentioned, her first year in the game, but I think if you um, can visualize that banter then that helps you out greatly and that's what I'm always doing is I'm thinking about you know what Stuart going to be saying on the back of what I've said or, or what might he say luckily as I say I've worked with Stuart so many times down the years that that helps and um, so yeah it, it is a process of sometimes visualizing and that is part of the fun of it. Do you ever do you get scope to like maybe ad lib lines or anything like that mm, or is it a very oh, yeah. tightly controlled script? No, no, it's very much ad-libbed. And um, what happens is they give me an idea. The producers will give me an idea. Here's what we're striving for. You know, here's the scenario. It might be, you know, uh, a close offside or it might be um, a free kick, you know, a peach of a free kick. And what they want is they want me to sound as organic as possible. So if it were all scripted, it wouldn't really sound like me. So, so they want it to be as much as possible. Here's what you would say in a, a game. It, it does get challenging because, of course, once you get to the, the sort of the, the 20th different way of, of describing something without actually being able to see it, because I'm not seeing it at the time, I'm not in, in your living room commentating on the actual incident. Um, but, but once you've got to the 20th example of that, then it can be a bit trickier to, to find a new way of saying it. But uh, that's what we attempt to do. And it, it's um, it's something that's really good for the brain, I think, because it, it keeps you um, dexterous that way, <laughs> you know, the mental dexterity side of it. And um, what I would stress above all is just the team aspect of that, because as I say, the production staff <clears throat> does such a wonderful job. Same with the audio team. And we all just try to, to do our bits and, and hopefully at the end have a product that people enjoy. Clearly you came to FIFA with an unquestionable pedigree. You were one of the leading English language callers in the world when you did, but what was the process like in coming aboard? I think it was in FIFA 19. Did EA yeah. Sports mm-hmm. reach out to you? Did Is it just word of mouth? Do you have to audition, go up against? I mean, what's it like becoming one of the voices of FIFA? 
Well, it was out of the blue, I have to tell you, Jerry. I had just left the UK. I've been working in the UK for many years um, for BT Sport, Mm -hmm. uh, latterly, uh, but also for a few other broadcasters. And we made the decision in 2017 to return to the US, but to still be traveling a lot, and especially to Germany to take on more Bundesliga commitments. And I was actually uh, in Germany. I was in uh, Dresden um, for a game when there was an email that came through from a third party. It was all very vague. And essentially it said, oh, um, there's some interest in you from all I can say is one of the biggest video game companies in the world. They have been following what you do and they'd like to have a chat with you. Uh, I can't be any more specific. So, you know, it was sort of, you know, cloaked a little bit at that time. And then a few days later, it emerged that it was in fact EA Sports that uh, they were the, the party interested. And so we got talking and, yeah, I, I did some auditions for them. And it turned out that they had been listening to me for a long time, specifically on the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Now, the Champions League is something that I, I did years and years ago. And my work popped up in Australia on ESPN at a time when both SBS and ESPN had rights to the Champions League. And it's funny, a lot of the communications that I got on the Champions League around that time came from Australia. So even at, you know, what time would it have been? Four in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, um, Eastern time. I I would hear a lot from Australian viewers. But it turned out that somebody at EA Sports had been listening to me way back then and had thought to himself, you know, this is a guy maybe we could could have on, on FIFA. And... It coincided with rights to the Champions League returning to FIFA. So um, this was all sort of part of the thinking that they wanted another voice specifically for the Champions League. And that's how I um, came on board. But I will say that for the first few months, I had to be economical with the truth in terms of what I was recording (laughs) on a week-to-week basis because... Um, you know, the announcement wasn't made until several months later, until June of the following year. So um, people would say, oh, you're traveling a lot. Are you going into a studio a lot? What, what, what are you doing? What's the, what's the big deal? And I would say, oh, it's just a, just a small project that I'm, you know, putting a few hours into. <laughs> I couldn't say. I just, I, I, yeah, I just couldn't. I wasn't allowed to say anything more than that. So um, eventually, it came out, and as you say, that was FIFA 19, which for me was the Champions League only. And then since then, it has sort of expanded um, year by year. But the content really hasn't changed because uh, even though it it is more content, it's still the same principle that applies to to what I do. And a lot of it is, as I've said, player names and being on top of that. And, of course, different inflections of, of player names. You'll hear me say uh, say names in a different way, in a different tone, according to the scenario, according to whether it's just a basic pass or a, a chance in front of goal. But, uh, as I say, it's, uh, it's something that uh, you don't take for granted. You, you really enjoy it when you do it. And, and I've been doing it since FIFA 19. And here we are now on, on FIFA 22, just about to come out. Because I'd be fascinated to know, like you're talking about ad-libbing a lot of scenarios, but I imagine there's also just a lot of reading out like team names for introductions mm. and oh, the yeah. player names as well. How much of that are you actually absorbing when you do it? We talked a little bit off air about you occasionally catch an A-League game, but like mm. does the fact that you will 
read out all of the A-League teams' names and have to record them for the game and record A-League players. Do you actually remember that? Uh, or is it just a case of eventually they all just mould together and you couldn't remember them 10 minutes later if you tried? Well, it is thousands of, of names, yeah. player names and team names, but there is a funny recall process because I, I know that, for example, from time to time, we'll miss a team, you know, for, for one reason or another and have to have to do that team. And, you know, I'll sometimes say to my production crew, I'll say, I think we've done that. I'm, I, I remember doing that team, you know, and then maybe we'll check back and maybe we did, or maybe, you know, my mind is, is playing a trick <laughs> on me and we actually never did. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of teams, you know, from many different countries, but usually, certainly if it's a, a name that I had to research, I will generally remember that because, you know, I, I put the time in to, to make sure uh, I was saying that name properly. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of content. Do you find that, obviously, they're incredibly different beasts, recording in a studio versus recording an actual live game and responding to it. But have you found that there's been any carryover to anything that you've been doing in FIFA to your real-life football commentary? Has it? Have you added any skills, or is there not much crossover? I think it has definitely made me, I'd use that word again from earlier, sort of more dexterous when it comes to sort of thinking quickly because you do have to think quickly when, when you're on a video game like FIFA and you have to come up with different ways of saying things. I will say that since I've started working on FIFA, I now hear it from a lot of people when they watch regular games, they'll say things like, oh, I heard you heard you using the same line that you used on FIFA just when you, when I was playing my FIFA game earlier and you used the same line. And my answer is, well, you're probably going to because the <laughs> idea is that FIFA is me. You know, it's not a, a robot version of me, ideally. You know, it, it is me. I'm not in your living room. I'm not, you know, physically mm -hmm. commentating on your game. But it, it's my sound and it's my words. And we do all have turns of phrase you know i have a turn of phrase that will be different from yours and you know onto the next broadcaster we just all have our, our own organic ways of saying things and um I, I think it's made me a better broadcaster you know I, I would hope so because as i say you really do have to be on top of your game you know for a long period and you have to go from sort of scenario to scenario to highs to lows to basic things to name pronunciations and all covered in one session and in a different order in comparison with how you would do an organic match. So from that point of view, it's a fascinating study, I think. Because I imagine you get lots of tweets and all of that directed at you about lines oh, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. I mean, do you have, is there, a, is there a line that is often sent to you about like that has become about uh, your catchphrase, so to speak? Do you have a favorite line from FIFA that keeps popping up in your timeline? Um, what's the one that, um, the, the one that people keep sort of teasing me about, and I will say, well, of course, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I said that once I said that line once <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not the guy who's saying it every single day. I just said it once and it's in the game. Um, and I think the one that I, I kept getting reminded about last year was near the end of a game when there's a, a fairly dramatic scenario. And I think I said something like, um, this is why we love this game, late drama, and now they're on top, or now they're level, or something like that. And um, yeah, if, if you play FIFA, you've probably heard that line, you know, quite a lot. <laughs> 
I'd also be really interested to know because as a burgeoning commentator myself down mm. here in Australia doing local uh, second tier national Premier League games, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear from you when looking at the real world of commentary, a game that's happening live in front of you. What do you think makes a good commentator? What are some of the things that a good commentator should be doing? Great question. I think, first of all, you have to like the commentator's voice. I think it has to be pleasant. It doesn't have to be any particular kind of voice, but it has to be a voice that the the viewer, the listener, if it's radio, but on, on TV, that the viewer enjoys listening to. I think less is usually more. That's my opinion. I think that if in doubt, you cut it back rather than over-talking. It's been my experience down the years that very few people will criticize you for saying nothing or very little, but they will criticize you for over-egging the pudding, as I like to say. And it's very easy to over-egg the pudding and get a bit carried away. So, so less is definitely more. Um, I think preparation is a huge part of it. And the preparation, as I've said, goes unseen. And people might not even know that you've prepared to the extent that you have, but it's being ready with that one little bit of information that you need in a timely moment, you know? And the trouble is that you never know when that moment is coming and you, you prepare all this material and you might use 2% of it, but it's preparing the 100%. So you have the 2% at your, at your fingertips. So I think, those things all together are really just working incredibly hard. I, I think that there's no substitute for that. And I often say to younger commentators, the, the problem is that, you know, on a Friday night when, you know, your mates are all having a, a grand old time, having a party, you're going to be stuck at home, not having a party, protecting that voice, which is your musical instrument and preparing. You know, because you have to be ready for your exam paper the next day. And, and, and every game is a bit like an exam paper, the way I see it. Um, it's like setting a test every time you do it. And you prepare for that test and, and you, you make sure you are ready to, to pass that test. And, um, you know, it, it has its challenges that way because it's a job, but you really have to love the job. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a job you can go into saying, OK, I'll just do my time and I'll do this one and I'll do the next one and I'll get through it. You really have to love it. You have to have a passion for it and you have to try to bring the game to life, but within the the structure of knowing that less is more. And I do believe less is more. It's funny, my, my um, one of my um, heroes as a broadcaster uh, was the late, great Richie Benno, you know, who, who I, I, to this day, I... I you know, can go back to my childhood and remember just sitting, hanging on Richie Benno's every word because he was a less is more broadcaster. You know, he did not overdo it. He found the right word at the right time, almost every time. And um, it's funny, I, I, I still have a little tribute thing that I do to Richie Benno. People don't know this, but um, often in the States, we have, because of the, the time difference, we have games that are in the morning American time and um, you probably guess uh, the first line I often utter is uh, morning everyone you know which is which is from Richie Benno and it's my little tribute to to somebody who I just think was a colossal broadcaster and I think um, you, you would do a lot worse than to listen back to somebody like Richie even though it's a different sport the same principles apply you know sports commentary and 
So that's where I come from. Everybody does it his or her own way, which is the great thing about it. You know, it's an art rather than an exact science, but I think there are some principles you can bring into it. But the main thing is, um, and I say this to young commentators regularly because I'm often asked about it, find commentators who, who you like and respect. Mm. Don't try to copy them, but but listen to what they're doing. You know, listen to to how they are doing things and, you know, just sort of write it down or, or make a mental note and go, okay, I really like the way he did that. Or maybe I don't like the way he did that so much because we do that too as commentators. We sometimes listen back and go, nah, I could have done that a little bit better. So um, it's listening, it's learning, it's working, it's uh, practicing, and it's um, never tiring of it, I think. I mean, that research, I, I imagine some of it is very um, contextualised, like X player scored in the 62nd minute of his last mm. game. You can't exactly yeah. reuse that. But how much of this research are you able to recycle, for lack of a better word, and maybe you didn't get a chance to use it this time or mm. maybe you did use it in that game, but yeah. it's an, a good enough tidbit to keep using. I mean, how often can you recycle that sort of stuff? You have to be careful that you're not saying the same things about mm. the same players every game. And I think, you know, the, the trap we fall into as commentators sometimes is that we research all this material and then we think we have to shoehorn it in. And mm. most of the time we don't. Most of the time we absolutely don't. So what I tend to do is I tend to, you know, for example, I, I, I commentate on Bayern a lot. And when you commentate on Bayern a lot, you learn that in every game there is a new Lewandowski fact that you sort of have to have at your fingertips because he's likely going to break another record. Yeah. And you know, I was just doing them this past weekend against Fürth where he for once missed a record. He missed the chance to equal Gert Müller's record for successive games in the Bundesliga with at least one goal. And it looked as though he had actually matched that record, but then it was given as an own goal. So it was even more complicated for, for, for those of us in the commentary business. But with, with somebody like Lewandowski, you have to be ready with those numbers. For most other people, you don't. You know, I think you, it's a nice thing to know if it's somebody's 200th game and they score in that game. It's a nice line to have. I think that's that's good to have. But some of the other more um, factoid things or, or storytelling things can wait, you know. So if you've got a nice story about a player and, and how he, um, you know, how he learned from his uncle who was a professional playing for Team X, um, that's a nice, li <clears throat> nice line to have. But you don't necessarily have to have it, you know, there and then. That's something that can wait. And you, you wait for the right moment. So... Um, you know, I'll give you another example. I um, was commentating on Barcelona this past weekend, and their young Bayern sensation. Barca, not a bad weekend. It, it, it was a good weekend, yeah. <laughs> Bayern on a Friday, Barca on a, a Sunday. Sort of different trajectories so far this <laughs> season, but but two huge clubs. And Ansu Fati came on for Barcelona near the end, 18 years of age, <clears throat> and um, has been injured, had, had, has had this bad injury, which has, you know, cost him nearly a year. But I made sure, and I researched it just by reading the Spanish papers just before the game, I made sure I was aware exactly how long he'd been out. And it was 322 days since he had been out since his injury against Betis. So, you know, you don't know this is going to happen, but Fatty 
a few minutes after coming on, scores this majestic goal. The whole stadium um, responds to this goal. It's a wonderful scene. And I was able to use the line 322 days later, you know, something like that. And um, so that's where the research, I think, comes in. And it can be something that you research, as I said, in the two hours before the game, because I didn't have that line until I read the Spanish papers that morning. Or it can be something that you'd been working on, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And um, as I say, my advice to younger commentators is always don't over egg that don't overdo it but certainly have it there and the great thing is in answer to your your other question yes you can recycle them i i do my own handwritten sheets for every game and i find that helps the memory process by writing things out i, I learned that studying languages years ago that when you physically write things out rather than just you know copying and pasting or printing off a computer if you write them out they will you know stay in the memory longer and um, I do that over and over again. I'll write down, you know, the same things I've written about Thomas Müller for, you know, 10 years. <laughs> Some of the same things. And I say, why am I writing this down? I've, I've almost never used this line. But then, you know, once in a, in a blue moon, that line comes out. And I, I don't necessarily know it's going to come out, but it just seemed relevant at the time. So um, that's how you go about it. The, the preparation never stops. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a day off yesterday but the day off was really ended up being several hours working on athletic bilbao and alaves two spanish clubs who i haven't done so much in recent years and i just felt in the mood to kind of get to know them a bit better ahead of a game that i have involving them both on friday of this week just there, 322 days for fatty and weren't tempted to throw in another richie benno tribute for the 22 bit I could have done, but I I wasn't thinking quickly enough about, at that at that particular moment. But it, it could have been a another Richie tribute for sure. Yeah, and I, I guess we can extrapolate a few things from what you said you like in a caller. Are there any bugbears that you get when you like you're listening to, as you mentioned, listen to other callers and maybe you write down what you didn't like? Are there any bugbears that you have when you're listening to a? I won't ask you to name names, but are there any bugbears you have when you're listening to a caller and go, I don't like it when people do that. Um. Not so much because I, I have terrific um, respect for everybody in the business and, and respect for people doing things their own way. I, I think the one thing that I notice would be, uh, to go back to what I said earlier, over-talking. And mm-hmm. I've been guilty of it too. I think we all go down that road from time to time. But um, silence is golden a lot of the time. And and when you try to, to you know, decorate it all in too many words, then I think that's where... You know, we can go downhill very quickly. Uh, the one thing I think you learn in this business after many years is that there's nothing more powerful than the image itself on TV. Mm. And as a commentator, if you overpower that image with words, then you've, I think you've done it the wrong way. <clears throat> I think the words should match the picture and match the moment. But um, once they are more powerful than the picture, mm, I don't know. That, that's not so much for me. But... Um, you know, for the most part, that and I would say maybe the other thing would be pronunciations and mm. and hearing somebody who clearly hasn't done his or her homework on a pronunciation. I'm especially sensitive to it when it comes to German names because I speak that language fluently, and I can always tell if somebody has done homework on on the German teams or German players, or if he or she is just basically winging it and and hasn't put in that work, and. Um, Listen, we can't get names 100% right 100% of the time. That's probably not realistic. But we should make an honest attempt at it. And I think it's something that we can all in this business do better.
You mentioned that fluid in German mentions uh, reading the Spanish newspapers. Just how many languages do you speak? Well, German's the only one that I would say is fluent. You know, people often say to me, oh, you, you speak all these languages. And I say, well, German is the one that I, you know, I, I can hold my own in a German setting on a on a sort of an eye level basis with, with Germans speaking their language. Um, Spanish is something I taught myself. Um, the story behind that actually is I... Um, I was the press officer for the World Cup in 1994 in the Boston venue. I took a bit of time out away from commentating. I was a young man at the time. And Argentina were the main team in our venue. And I didn't speak any Spanish, and I wanted to put that right. So I sort of started teaching myself and um, found that I picked it up relatively quickly. So so that one I can, I can handle. Um, French I learned at school, not as good as my German, but I speak it. Um, Dutch is the one that I sort of have a bit of a, a mini obsession with because it's it's a bit like a cross between German and English. So if you're a German mm-hmm. speaker, you can under, I, I can read Dutch and understand quite a lot of it. Um, I don't speak it as well as that, but that's one of my projects for, um, you know, whenever retirement comes, which I hope is several years from now. But when the time comes to slow down a bit, I'd like to spend a bit more time just um, just refining my Dutch. So um, I think when you have that sort of base of different languages, because German's very different from mm. French and Spanish, different roots altogether, much closer to, to Dutch, um, then y- your bases are covered. I-, I can read Portuguese and Italian, even though I don't really speak those languages particularly well, um, but I can read them because they come from the same root as Spanish and French. So it's another string to the bow, I think. And mm. again, it's another thing I think for young broadcasters, if you can, if you have the interest and you have the um, the ability, you know, find a language that that you like, find a language that uh, that you think you might enjoy, and um, trust me, it will really help with coverage of the world game because that's what it is, and it puts you in the position of being able to understand another culture much better. Mm. Keeping focus on Germany and the Bundesliga itself, mm. just from the outside looking in, it looks like the Bundesliga, it's a very slick operation. I mean, even just their Eng- English language uh, content that they produce in-house, it's it's mm. very yeah. informative. It's really well, industry-leading stuff, worldwide industry-leading stuff from what I can tell. What's it like working for them? You mentioned you do the World Feed. Yeah. What's it like working with the Bundesliga? It's an absolute joy. It's a real pleasure. They are very professional uh, at the the DFL in Germany, and they really want to put their best foot forward in terms of explaining to the world what this league is and what this football culture is. And I keep using that word culture, but I think it's important because, you know, every country has its own football culture and stamp, you know, Um, in Australia, it'll be different than it is in Scotland, where I'm from originally, or in Germany, or in the United States, or in Argentina, or in Brazil. And I think that's a big part of it, you know, and, and it sort of started with this campaign, football as it's meant to be, which was um, thought up as a way of essentially expressing to the world that this is football with the, the biggest um, crowds in the world, um, with less of the corporate aspect of football and and i think that did strike a chord with a lot of people and it's why many people from australia from the us from canada when they go and experience european football a lot of them decide to go to germany first and i think with good cause because of that football as it's meant to be idea um 
as I say, for me, it's a bit of a labor of love because I studied German very young. It came to me um, more easily than I think it comes to most people for some reason. I don't know. don't know why that is, but I used to listen to German radio from my home in Aberdeen because we had a direct signal right across the North Sea to, to Hamburg, the, the northern port. And um, as I say, it was also to tie in with my love of football as well. I would listen to the German games on the radio in German, and you know, people would laugh at me, saying, "What? What do you? What do you do? What's all this? Listening to German football on the radio? Aren't there better things to do?" But I, I used to, you know, derive great joy from doing that. Um, it, it's a league that I think, once people discover, again, this is just my perhaps slightly biased opinion on this, but I think once people discover it then they realize how special it is. And I think particularly if you get to go to a game, if you get to go to a game in Germany in normal times, and we're not obviously in normal times at the moment, but in normal times when the stadiums are full and you go to a game, the number of people who've said to me, oh, I I will never look back now uh, at the period before I went to that game because it changed my whole perspective in terms of what a spectator experience should be. And... Listen, most people love English football, and rightly so. It's, it's, it's terrific football in the Premier League. But I always say to people, for me anyway, and I think for, for most who have experienced both, when you go to a game in Germany, it's on a different level in comparison with a game in England. Just atmosphere-wise, it is the best. Australians, there's been a few connections with German football yeah. Over the years, Brandon Barella has played in the mm-hmm. Bundesliga. Robbie Cruz, Matt yep. Leckie, who's recently returned back to Australia. I think Jackson Irvine's currently in the second tier in Germany. Yep. There is one of the very few uh, Australians in one of the big five leagues at the moment is Aidan Hrustich at yes, Eintracht Frankfurt, yep. even if he does appear to have lost his place in the starting lineup yeah. in recent um, weeks. Have you seen much of Frankfurt uh, this season? What's been your thoughts around them? They're, they're having a difficult start. They mm-hmm. have a new coach in Oliver Glasner, who they got from Wolfsburg. They really, I think, were always on a bit of a hiding to nothing this season because mm-hmm. they lost all the big decision makers who had been in positions of power at the end of the last campaign for various reasons. You know, Freddy Bobic, who was the, the head guy, the CEO, but, you know, very respected figure and knows how to run a football operation. He decided that he didn't want to continue there. He's gone off to Hertha. His family was living in Berlin. Um, they, they lost uh, Bruno Hübner, longtime sporting director, and a few other key members of staff. And the coach, Adi Hütter, went to Gladbach. So I think this was always going to be a bit of a season of turmoil. Now, Hrustic, I, I saw him score that amazing goal at the end mm. of last season, which I'm sure got played over and over again in Australia. And I think he just has to bide his time. We'll see whether he's um, good enough. You know, We'll see whether he's good enough in the mind of Oliver Glasner. If he's not, there'll be a team for him somewhere else. But... Um, I think it was going to be a hard season for Frankfurt this time in comparison with the last campaign when they just missed out on the Champions League. Probably should have been in the Champions League, but they, um, as you would say, stuffed it up a bit towards the end of the campaign. Um, that great Australian expression. And um, yeah, so so here we are. But no, I always look out for the Australian players like Hrustic and um, you know Scott McDonald when I was working in Scotland is somebody who I, I used to always enjoy um, watching because he was a personality and, and, and mm. somebody who um, was never afraid to, to say what he thought off the pitch as well so uh, wherever I've worked Australian players have been part of that narrative and, and let's hope for more in German football in the years ahead too
Did, did your time working in Scottish football coincide with uh, Dukes, Mark Viduka at Celtic? Um, no, but, but I've met him um, on a few occasions. And I met him, actually. I, I got to spend a bit of time with him doing a, a long one-on-one interview around the time of the, the famous playoff against Uruguay. I don't know if you know my story with regard to that, but I, I, was, I was at both games. I was at uh, the first leg in Montevideo, and I was at the second leg in Sydney. And this was all through ESPN, because at the time, the Australian audience was very important to what ESPN was doing with a show called Press Pass that I used to host. Mm-hmm. And they had this idea. They said, we would love to just get you to both games to do on-the-spot reports um, around both games. We didn't even have the rights to these games, but um, it was just seen as something that was quite important at the time. And we knew that there was potentially history in the making, you know, the Socceroos were the underdogs, but I think for some reason we had this inner belief that they might just do it. And of course they did. And and I'm not just saying this because we're on <laughs> together and I'm talking to Australia. Those two games, especially the second one, of course, they go down as among my favorite memories as a football broadcaster. Uh, and I genuinely felt like I was an Aussie myself that night. Uh, I, I can't really explain it. It may have been because Scotland at the time were sort of on the down. And I just felt a sort of a kinship with the whole story that was happening around me. And I'd got to know some of the players like Viduka. And he sat down for an interview and was great. you know. And he, and he wasn't the, the guy I expected because um, when he was at Celtic, when he joined Celtic, he sort of had this image of being a little bit difficult and a bit kind of petulant and not easy to interview. And a few People in Australia had said, no, I've not found him to be like that. And, um, you know, I, I know uh, Robbie Musto, for example, who played with him at uh, Middlesbrough. Robbie's a broadcaster on NBC nowadays, and, and he didn't have that experience with him either. So I got a very expansive interview with him, actually, in uh, Buenos Aires, ahead of the, the game in Montevideo in 2005, uh, because that's where the base was. They mm. based themselves yeah. in, in Buenos Aires and then traveled to, um, to Montevideo. So, so no, I didn't. I was um, I was working for ESPN uh, in the USA when when he joined Celtic. But I think he last I heard he's got an interesting life for himself now in Croatia. And uh, um, I think I read a story about him recently saying that he's um, you know living the life of Riley, serving cappuccinos and um, you know just having a grand old time. And uh, what a player! You know, I, I think history will will judge Mark Viduka really well as a player and that whole generation that that made it to the World Cup. I mean, how difficult is it to go and do it against Uruguay with a, a team that, of course, had just basically decided to make the move to a different confederation because it, it wasn't helping them being in Oceania. I think it was the right decision to do that. And it comes back to Graham Arnold again because Arnie was, was part of that with, uh, with Gus Hiddink, who... Uh, I got to spend a bit of time with as well. My other story from that is, I'm sorry for boring you with this particular oh, story. Not but at all, as, you, as you can tell, it's dear to my heart. We, um, I got to know Hidden quite well. And, and, and I think he knew me and he knew why I was there. And I was, you know, flying with, with him and with Arnold and with a lot of these people. And um, after you beat Uruguay, I had to fly all the way back to the States, you know, long way from, from Sydney, and I had to go back and host Press Pass. But my bosses had said to me, if you can get Hiddink to give you a one-on-one exclusive just so we could make a program about this incredible story, 
um, and we can use highlights because they had rights to the highlights, then we'll fly you to um, to the Netherlands next week when you come back, if you want to do it, and and uh, get a one-on-one with him, and then we'll quickly make it into a little mini documentary. And um, so Hiddink said, he said, he said to me, yeah, I'll do it. He said, call, 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 the, um, call the press office next week. We did. And I went out there and did it. And that was sort of the advantage of being probably closer than Australia is to <laughs> to almost anywhere. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? That geographically it's so hard. I mean, New York is not, is you know, it's far enough, but at least you can take an overnight flight, seven-hour mm. flight, be in Amsterdam. It was a snowy morning, got my, my hire car uh, at uh, Ski Pole Airport, drove through the snow, uh, made it in time for my appointment with Gus Hiddink, and got this amazing interview. Terrific interview where he essentially took me through every minute of the whole drama. And um, as I say, it all sort of contributed to one of my favorite memories in football as as a broadcaster. And with that in mind, I I kind of um, I keep an eye out for Australia and and I, I sort of have you as my other my other team in many respects. You know, I don't know if people know that, but I I sort of do. When you were in Uruguay yeah. and Sydney for those games, did you happen to meet a member of the Australian press back at Londoner called Michael Mick Lynch? Yes, I did. Yes. That's my father. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, I, I should have known that. Um, no, I, I did. And, and, and he was lovely. And uh, in fact, I remember him introducing himself to me. And uh, I, I didn't put two and two together, Joey, until you've just said that. But that's your dad. Wow. No, a great guy, great journalist. And they were all really nice to me, all, all those journalists. And it's not always that way when you have a, a press corps and somebody comes in from the outside. Mm. And I think that the luck I had was that they all knew of the show that I presented because it went mm. um, it went you know, live to Australia. And uh, it, it was, it's funny because I was only there, for, I was only in Australia for a couple of days, but I crammed so much into it. I got to meet one of my heroes, Pierre Lidbarski, who was then coaching in Sydney. Sydney yeah, yeah. And um, we just thought we'd take a chance and contact them. And it said, well, I'm here. It'd be great to sit down and talk to Pierre Lidbarski, who, who I, you know, as a Germanophile, um, you know, was a huge fan of. And it turns out when I got there and um, see this figure walking over towards me with a big smile on his face that um, he, he knew who I was and everything. And I, I couldn't quite get my head around that. He said, oh, he said, he said, it's you. He said, I watch you every week on the <laughs> on the press pass show. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I said, uh, well, I said, no, I'm, you're the important one. I'm not. You know, I'm just here to interview you. And um, I've never been back since, you know, I've never been back to Australia since. And it's something that I really do want to put right. You know, I mentioned earlier spending a bit more time studying Dutch when things slow down. But that's something I want to do as well, is just spend more time in Australia um, as a tourist, as an observer. Uh, and, yeah, the taste I got of it was fabulous. What a what a country, what a what a city Sydney was. And, of course, it was it was buzzing um, during that period and, and during that that game and uh yeah it, it's I, I think it will you can correct me but i think it probably still goes down as uh oh. a, a, yeah as, as one of the moments in the story of the sport in in australia i think it's just flat out one of the biggest moments in australian sporting history yeah, period at yeah. this point it has evolved into that and I guess as a Melbourneian, I am on a bound yeah. to state that Melbourne better than Sydney. Just well, just, I, I, just still, yeah. I think it's the well, Boston New York relationship we sort of have. We're Boston to their New York, smaller well, but better. I, 
Well, I live in Boston, as as you may know, and uh, yeah, I, I I can get that, and and also <laughs> I, I I have a lot of connections in Melbourne too, um, you know, family connections and you know friends, and and obviously you know many a Scot ended up in in Melbourne, so um, so yeah, that's definitely on the list for the future. Mm. Oh, who, who knows? Maybe twenty twenty three, the Women's World Cup is coming down under. There might be a professional opportunity in that sort of sense. But I also yeah. did want to. We've been talking about Aussie connections to Germany, and there was one thing I really wanted to get your expert opinion on German football is that we're also seeing a lot of Australian youth at the moment go and sign with junior sides in uh, Germany. Some of our best mm. prospects, um, Jacob Italiano, who broke through very young for Perth Glory, signed with Mönchengladbach, and. Um, We've recently seen Alua Kuol, who set the A-League on fire last season with goals, went and signed with Stuttgart, and he's now mm. playing for their junior side. What makes German youth development effective, in your opinion? I mean, obviously it works. Germany mm. won how many World Cups? What is special about German youth development that hopefully these Australian prospects will benefit from? Well, I think, first of all, you get a chance in Germany in a way that you don't in certain other countries, you know, and I think the obvious one is England. If you go to the English academy system, then you're up against it, you know, and you might not realistically get a chance and you end up going out on loan and you sort of have the feeling that a few years have been wasted. Maybe not for everybody, but certainly for a lot of players. I think the experience in Germany is that there is a belief in youth. You can sign a young player. You can have him play for the juniors. If he's good, he will get his chance. He will be playing for the first team at 17. Uh, we've seen that in the last year with a whole host of players. I always think the USA and Australia are, are quite similar in terms of being countries that are not traditional football countries, but are up-and-coming football countries. They have other sports that are popular. And I think that perhaps Australian parents and youngsters are looking at what American parents and youngsters have done. And in the last few years, that has been phenomenally successful for Americans going to Germany, you know, doing that thing, getting the, the, the chance at a young age. Uh, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKenney. Uh, you mentioned Gladbach. There's a guy called Joe Scally, who uh, is a teenager who, you know, hasn't been there very long, but now is playing regularly for the first team. So it can happen. And um, I think the coaching is really good. I think it is inspiring coaching as well. I think it's educational. And I think it also has that element of being a hard school. You know, you have to kind of come through it. But unlike in England, which is also a hard school, there is kind of a, a goal that's presented at the end of it, you know, that's quite obvious. So for a young player, you can say, okay, if I do this, 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 this and this, then I'm going to get a chance in the first team. You know, I'm going to get a chance to showcase my talents. And I think also it's just the, the factor of being such a football culture. You know, the, the culture is, is everywhere. Even if you're with a smaller team, um, you know, say a team like Freiburg, for example, that small team is still the focus of attention in the city and in the surrounding area. And you feel as though you're really part of something. But I think it broadly comes down to the opportunity and the opportunity to shine on a big stage at a young age. And looking at Germany, also, there's a lot of, when we're talking about Americans, there's American coaches we're increasingly mm -hmm. seeing heading over to Germany as well. I know it's been a big thing in Australia discussing there's sort of been like a battle of perceptions that Australian coaches face 
on the continent that you're from Australia, you're from a football backwater. What do you yeah. know? Um, which we've only recently seen hints of um, being not disappearing, but being cracked with the likes of um, Ange Postacoglu at Celtic, who yeah. um, is carrying a lot of hopes for a lot of Australian coaches. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a pathway that Australian coaches might want to look at in the future, heading to Germany to take their lumps, so to speak, in the European system and establish a reputation? Why not? And mm-hmm. you're ready, for example, to use the American comparison. You have Jesse Marsh mm-hmm. there in Leipzig. Now, he's had a bit of a rocky start. Maybe, you know, you could say the same for Ange at Celtic. Mm-hmm. But um, Jesse Marsh is somebody who they believe in, in Leipzig. And it doesn't matter that he's American. So if an American can do it, um, why not an Australian? Mm-hmm. I-, I think that there are different pathways to it. But I, I, I never really understood why a nationality should define whether somebody is a good coach or not. You know, you're either a good coach or you're not. And you have the skills to improve or you don't. And, you know, Australia is, you know, for me, it, it's one of the, the great sporting cultures in the world. You know, and the fact that, that football has only more recently become part of that in a bigger way is kind of immaterial. I mean, um, it's the one thing you learn talking to any Australian, that sport is really at the at the forefront of daily life. And it stands to reason that, if given a chance, there will be good Australian coaches in the European context as well. So, um, yeah, I think they can look to it. I, I, what I would say about Germany is, is the one important point. Culturally, you do have to, I think, be able to adapt to a different language and a different culture. Now, Jesse Marsh is doing it, although he was really helped by the the Red Bull system. He'd been the coach in New York. He got the chance to be the assistant in Leipzig, gave him a chance to learn the language, to, um, t- to be more part of the culture. Went to Salzburg, where German, of course, is the main language as well. A s- situation that I think is a good one for most coaches, where, you know, you have a lot of success because you have more resources. Yeah. And, you know, he's used that as the springboard for himself. And now he's at Leipzig and we'll see how it goes. It got better for him this past weekend, but some of the earlier results hadn't been great. Um, so I think you have to be prepared to do that. You have to be prepared to sacrifice. And uh, we'll see. It might be something for, for a, a generation of, of Australian coaches. It probably helps if you've played there. You know, so if somebody... Mm-hmm who has, you mentioned somebody like Matthew Leckie, um, if somebody has played there for a good number of years and has the language as he does, then that certainly makes the the entry a bit easier. And perhaps one last one for me, Derek, because you've been super generous with your time. I think we'll be going nearly an hour. But recently, myself and a few journalistic colleagues, well, I say having a discussion, they were having a discussion, a debate, so to speak, and I watched from the sidelines. The debate was in a hypothetical situation where Bayern Munich were made to field 10 men in every single game of the Bundesliga season, where would they finish in the league? I stayed out of it um, because I didn't feel I know enough. But now that I'm speaking to an expert, Mm. what would be your initial reaction to that? The general consensus from my colleagues was challenging for Champions League, not winning the league, but challenging for Champions League. Is that a fair assessment? It probably is. Um, And I can give you a couple of examples from the last few months. In fact, from last Friday, when they played Greuther Fürth, admittedly the bottom club, and they were, you know, well on top in the game. 
and Benjamin Pavard got sent off early in the second half. So they played an entire half pretty much with only 10 men on the pitch against Kreider Fürth. And yeah, they conceded a goal near the end, but they, you know, they still were pretty comfortable. I can give you a better example against Stuttgart back in, when was it, March? I was commentating on the game. Alfonso Davies got sent off in the first few minutes. And that was a pretty good Stuttgart side, so we thought. And so I'm doing commentary and saying, well, we're going to find out a lot about Bayern in this game. What did they do? They they scored four goals, including a Lewandowski hat-trick, <laughs> playing for almost 90 minutes with, with 10 men against a respectable side. So, um, yeah, I mean... We probably need to have more examples of it, but I, I, I don't, in all honesty, think that's far wrong. That that they are superb. I think they would have trouble against the, the, the top echelon of teams. I think against the likes of Leverkusen, against Dortmund, against Leipzig, um, it might not be so easy. But um, I probably share that view that uh, that even with ten, there is such quality that they would fare pretty well. I think the pace of some of those teams at the top tier pretty tough to defend them with defend yeah. them with ten men. Uh, the yeah. space you'd be leaving, uh, I imagine. But um, Derek Ray, just really, this has been a fantastic. I think it's my favourite chat it's thus far that I've oh. done for the on the lead, mate. It's been really illuminating. The voice of FIFA, the voice of the Bundesliga, increasingly the voice of La Liga for a horde of uh, uh, English speaking viewers very much appreciate your time discovering your appreciation for Australian football and memories of Montevideo and Sydney and hopefully more memories to come but thank you so much for your time today it's been um, an amazing chat Joey the pleasure's all mine thanks very much for having me and I'm sure we'll do it again sometime Viewers of the Bundesliga and La Liga on ESPN and viewers of the German Top Flight's world feed We'll continue to hear Derek's voice all throughout the season, and you can also catch his column on German football in ESPN. FIFA 22 will release across pretty much every single platform there is uh, on October 1 in Australia, and I'll probably be grabbing myself a copy once I can figure out how exactly I go about getting my hands on PS5. Those things are like hen's teeth at the moment. And I'd also like to quickly thank Melbourne Victory E-League representative Mose Wed for his help in preparing for my chat with Derek. But for now, I'd like to thank you all for joining us on another edition of ESPN's Beyond the Lead. It's time for a chat with the voice of FIFA, the Bundesliga, and many more, Derek Ray. I've been your host, Joey Lynch, and as a reminder, you can catch this episode, every other episode of Beyond the Lead, and indeed all of ESPN's collection of podcasts and audio goodness, wherever you happen to get your pods from. If you're enjoying Beyond the Lead or any of our other podcasts, including our dedicated women's football podcast, The Far Post, be sure to subscribe, leave a famous five-star review, and help spread the word. Thanks for listening today, tomorrow, or whenever you happen to be listening, and don't fret, as I'll catch you soon for another deep dive into sports as ESPN takes you beyond the lead very soon.